0: Hello everybody, I'm Jason, and I'll be getting up five times during this recording to refill my coffee, and I'm joined with, or joined by Remy. Hello, hello. Zarin. Hello. And LT, who you may also know as Lucas Tones. Hello, it's me. I'm back again for a special return guest appearance. That's right, for the second episode of, what if we called this, People with Unrelated Accents? Ooh, that sounds about right. Yeah. The series where we get together at a regular and unscheduled inter- uh, intervals to talk about whatever... We feel like, which last time was uh, Escape from Monkey Island, and this time will be Loom. I don't think there's supposed to be a conscious pattern with this series, but we kind of have one so far, which is that we're doing the, the black sheep of the LucasArts catalog, which I guess under the idea that it's um a richer vein for discussion.
1: Yeah, I suppose so.
2: Yeah, although I would say I don't consider loom a a black sheep in the same way as escape
0: from monkey island though i mean i know what you're saying but just wanted to just clarify that well yeah black sheep may be the wrong way of putting it because i i get the impression that everyone who's played loom likes it a lot i guess it's it's more appropriate to call it underplayed and it is a it is an outlier of sorts in the library oh yeah it's definitely
2: different from the other scum scum games for sure
0: I guess we should start with uh, talking about when we first played loom because I get the I will I I know that some of us played it at a uh, a later age than others did. Remy, didn't you just play it within like the last 48 hours for the first time?
1: Yeah, I played it initially 20 years ago, but I only played a certain part of it, but yeah, uh I think I finished it on Thursday. So yeah.
0: <laughs> that interest that well that, that that kind of amazes
1: me. How far did you get the first time you played it? Uh, the first time, I think I got right off the island, which at the, uh, the time, I was thinking that would be just a very short part of it, but it turned out that's probably right about half of it. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well, I'm too young to have played it when it came out. I was born the year Maniac Mansion came out, so I wasn't buying LucasArts games, you know, on release day until, like, the late 90s, I guess. But I... I um I was exposed to it through the Classic Adventures pack which I still maintain was probably like the greatest single product that LucasArts ever released that was a compilation of the first 5 Scum games which was Maniac Mansion through Monkey Island 1 that you could get to the company store with it, it had a beautiful book with it didn't it the like the the uh,
2: the hint books all sort of
0: put into one Yeah it came with this master manual that um like uh, stitched together all the manuals plus the uh, narrative walkthroughs. That's right. Uh, for the games, which were great, and also the copy protection codes for um, Maniac Mansion and Zach McCracken. For the other games, they were able to just, I guess, program it to bypass the um, the copy protection. But for the first two games, they got cute with it and like put the copy protections in the middle of the games. So it was probably harder to just. <laughs>
3: write a line of code to bypass it, so they had to actually include the codes. Yeah, Loom was pretty much cracked right away. I remember we uh, first time I played, it was an Amiga in the early 90s, and yeah, you just you got a copy protection screen, but no matter what you answered, you got straight through and you could play the game.
1: Yeah, and I think that was the same thing with most of the, yeah, uh, scum games.
0: Yeah, it's interesting in retrospect how they tried to like get too clever with Maniac Mansion and Zack, because Maniac Mansion had the security door so you could get, like, partway through the game. And then Zach McCracken had the weird business with the
3: um, international flights. Yeah. Day of the Tentacle did the same thing with the battery patent. And depending on how much you how you play the game, you could either get to it in five minutes in, or it was, you know, an hour in, and then you suddenly could, couldn't play more without a manual.
0: Yeah, I had to learn about that in retrospect, because I had the CD version.
3: Yeah, the CD version just skips that uh, screen entirely.
2: See, I played the floppy version originally, but I always remember that being like almost immediately at the start of the game. I it didn't occur to me that that could happen until further through. Because doesn't Doctor Fred say like we need to get my battery plan, and then it's like you, uh, it, it won't let you progress unless you can get the manual.
0: It was something like that.
2: I'm sure you it forced it a lot earlier than that.
0: I mean, maybe I'm wrong. What, what was Loom's copy protection while we're on the subject? Because I've never gotten to see it.
2: I was going to say, I haven't seen it for about 15 years. Isn't there like a sheep and a, a, a crook and stuff like that? Different icons. It's, i've got vague memory of it that, like i it was before the like the difficulty select screen yeah i
0: remember ages ago someone complaining or like falsely saying that um the grail diary for last crusade and the book of patterns for loom were copy protection and it's that that's not the case both of those games had like actual copy protection and the uh the physical supplements were like just basically features those were like ill ill uh ill conceived features they weren't intended as copy protection I would say actually the uh, the book of patents does give you the
2: opening draft. I think that's the only place where you actually see it written down.
0: well, I think they teach you the opening the opening spell. they teach it to you anyway, if I'm not mistaken. Oh uh, you're probably right all right so we we started off talking about how it's a it's a different game, it's a unique game in the library um I guess in the first place, it's just the fact that it's fantasy which I think I think was pretty common for graphic adventure games of the era because, you know, they were all made by nerds, and so they were just making um, token derivatives. And uh, I remember Ron Gilbert said that one of his motivations for doing a pirate game was just to not do fantasy. He just didn't want to do what everyone else was doing. And that was one quality LucasArts could boast, was that they weren't... Um, well, their, their games just kind of stood apart in that way. I mean, I I enjoy the Sierra games myself, but I don't think anyone could uh, claim that they were like genre-breaking games. I mean, their fucking games were literally called King's Quest and and <laughs> Space Quest. So Loom was different in that it was a high fantasy game. It had dragons and wizards and and those familiar elements, and that was because Brian Moriarty came from um, Infocom, right? Uh, yeah, no, didn't he didn't
2: because he was from. Uh the Zork games, didn't he do, like, Zork 3 or something? Or I might be totally wrong about that. I know I know he did tri- he did
0: Trinity. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that what it was called? Was it, like, the nuclear one? Yeah, he was making fantasy text-based adventure games, so that was kind of his wheelhouse. But I have to say, the, the great thing about Loom is that it still feels pretty... It does not feel, like, derivative at all. It's got a very interesting world, even though it's got, you know... Some of the trappings of of high fantasy it it definitely i mean it, it's kind of the main selling point of the game is that it's so uh original, yeah, and
2: I mean if you take it in in like the whole package with the audio drama and the whole game, it has that real fantasy thing of, of telling a story that seems to span quite a large
0: period of time as well it feels pretty thought out too yeah it's very internally it just feels like a world that somebody sit down sat down and 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 sort of and kind of worked out yeah I mean the whole mythology of the guilds and everything and just the basic idea of like blending fantasy with um, Tchaikovsky is such like a weird weird idea that works really well kind of in the same way that like Grim Fandango is based on a weird idea of Mm. marrying you know a film noir the film noir genre with with Mexican folklore
3: where did the idea of using Swan Lake as a theme for a the game come from? Because they also used the. the uh,
0: I was playing through it a
2: little bit earlier today, and I honestly thought I bet this is probably only here because they all turned into swans, and it grew out of that. But it's I mean, obviously that's quite a cynical interpretation. i but it's possible because I was just thinking like, this it just it's like a happy accident almost.
3: Or did it like Swan Lake and they decided to turn them into a swan, swans as a? So it,
2: oh so it could be the other way around so that the, the swans are in the game because it was swan lake
0: i remember when the movie um uh, black swan came out it uses swan lake as a as a soundtrack for you know more obvious reasons and I there was a point in the movie where i had to catch myself because i almost almost had the thought in my head of like they're, they're stealing the loom soundtrack <laughs> how how
3: blatant is this the fat man the uh, george sanger talked a little bit about this in one of the interviews and he said he actually listened to a performance of the swan lake where he uh, changes the rhythm of the uh, the media files at every measure to match up with a live recording so it sounds less robotic when it play, is played back in game and i don't think that's been done before
0: it sounds like there was a lot of painstaking work going on on the audio side and also on the visual side because one of the claim
3: It, it really pushes the uh, MT32 because it uses almost all the tracks on it. And that wasn't really <laughs> a normal thing to do back then because it had a bit much fewer uh, tracks that you could use at the same time.
0: And, and the graphics, I mean, have to be put into context too because even though it's only, I, I think it's only a 16 color game, the original version, but it just doesn't look. That way, because of all the the hocus pocus they came up with for the the dithering effects, they really mined um, a lot out of their limitations with that game.
2: It's unbelievably good, isn't it?
3: I think it's one of the better-looking uh, EJ games, certainly, so especially the first Loom Island, because they only really used um, shades of blue and black. It looks a bit worse when you get into uh, di- daylight in the uh, the Crystal Garbage. It's, it's, it's yeah. It's still amazing what they could do with Only 16 Colors at the time.
2: Well, I was, what I was going to say was it actually felt like when I was looking at it in the context of when it came out that it's probably, relatively speaking, got the highest production values out of all the LucasArts games because the artwork is unbelievable on every screen. Um, and it's got all the extra stuff, obviously. like They recorded the the backstory in terms of the audio drama and that kind of thing. And none of the other games really had any kind of stuff... You know that expansive amount of stuff that went into it, just every single element of bloom, every little small animation, is sort of bespoke. Um, and maybe because it's such a shorter game, but
0: well, the game was also made during, I guess we could call this version two of the Scum engine. Version one being the one that powered Maniac Mansion and Zack You know, when those games came out, they were a huge, you know, revolution, or whatever you want to call it, uh, in terms of gameplay, but. People forget that Sierra still had the edge, even still with regard to the artwork. They were kind of still superior. Mm. They were superior rivals in terms of on the art and animation side, and it was with the second version of the engine that LucasArts started to up the ante. I mean, you could see it with Last Crusade, Loom, and Monkey Island, you know, that they had really good animations in it. Um, I don't think Maniac Mansion and Zach McCracken really have much animation at all. I mean, the characters walk around, their mouths open and close. You might have a grandfather clock ticking in the background, but it was those um, those next three games that really kind of started to flex that muscle. And Loom was definitely, you know, in the middle of that.
3: Yeah, when when you talk about Loom, uh, the uh, audio drama and speech of it. Let's uh, let's just make it clear right now that Loom was the first LucasArts adventure game with speech, mm. and not Day of the Tentacle, like Tim Schafer keeps claiming.
0: Well, Loom is kind of... Well, at some point we have to talk about the various versions of Loom, um, but isn't it true, though, that it's a little bit ambiguous with Loom because technically the CD version was developed by Mindscape,
1: Probably, but at the same time, I would assume most people <coughs> would think that, I mean, it's a Luke LucasArts game at that point. I mean, it doesn't really matter who made the voice version of it. So I, th- I think it's probably right to say that that is the first uh, voice-over uh, LucasArts game or Lucasfilm games, I guess, at that point.
3: Yeah, and Pay of Atlantis was released after it, and Dave the Tanker, like, a month or two after. So it's not the first one, no matter how you look at it.
2: But I think there was a... There were two games, weren't there? There was the Loom and Secret Monkey Island had those sort of software toolworks CD releases in the really big fat boxes, um, and obviously the Monkey Island version just had CD CD audio tracks. But didn't the Loom do the the voiceovers in the same way? Like the dialogue was all CD audio track. I, I may be wrong again about that, but there was definitely like a, a change in technology when you got to Face of Atlantis. They used to they obviously switched over to the monster sound files
3: yeah loom runs on the uh, same uh, Loom the b j version runs on the same almost the same version as the secret of Monkey Island it supported uh, c d audio uh and how, and it does how long after how long after the original release was the c d ROM version of loom
0: wasn't it well, didn't it come out significantly later ninety two two years later yeah That's interesting because the audio drama came out with the original release, and so I guess two years later they went back and re-wrangled the the voice cast to participate in the uh, the recorded version of the game.
3: They sounded like the same people, but I don't think there's uh, complete credit for who did the voices in the game.
0: Well, since we're on the subject, um, the CD version of Loom is kind of worth talking about because it's so... It's... Well, first of all, I'd say that the only definitive version of the game is the um, the original EGA one. I mean, I think all the versions of Loom are, are worth playing in, in, in a way that most ports of games are not necessarily worth tracking down. I think Loom is unique in that, just like there's, they, they all have interesting advantages and disadvantages. And in the case of the uh, CD-ROM version of Loom, with regard to the audio side, they were just kind of, it came out too early. Um,. Mm. They used CD audio, which made the samples, which made the, the, the sound fidelity superior ironically, I think, to like any other LucasArts adventure game with with recorded dialogue, but the price they paid for that was that um, they didn't have music. It wasn't it that the voices and the music always came at the same time. They were they, they couldn't they couldn't have background yeah. music while other characters were talking.
3: Yeah, but that's a limitation of the CD audio engine, in that you you can really only play one CD audio track at a time.
2: And if it's CD audio, then there's obviously a hard limit as well, isn't there? Like 74 minutes or whatever, like, that's all you've got, then...
3: Yeah, the the thing, though, is that you only use about 50 minutes on the CD, and the game itself took about 5-6 minutes of audio, so they could have put more they could have made the dialogue longer. They didn't need to cut it down.
0: Mm. I think the atmosphere of the game takes a hit as a result, though, because even though the original game is not wall-to-wall music, it just feels awkward when, like, the game is totally silent until a cutscene, because that's the only time that the the CD version can can play audio. And then um, another consequence was that the animators struggled to uh, preserve the character close-ups because the lip-syncing was kind of beyond their reach with the technology of the time, so... For the most part, they had to cut all the character close-ups. Didn't someone find in the resource files of the CD version like Loom sucks in one of the uh, the Elder's faces? Isn't that yeah on the VGA? <laughs> and also the frame you can see a few like discarded frames of animations from their attempts to do the animation that just didn't work out. Yeah,
3: because you do they did keep more of the close-ups I think in the FM tones version because it has no speech. So the F- so the VGA versions of those close-ups existed. Yeah,
0: the FM Towns version is faithful to the original in terms of the, uh, well, the, in terms of the script and the uh, the close-ups. It's just in
3: two hundred and fifty-six colors. But the, uh, C- CD is, the CD audio is CD audio is really weird. It it has two versions of each tune, and the second one is well, it has changed the instruments around at random. It's the
0: weirdest part of the CD version is that the whole game is rewritten. It's 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 crazy. I mean, the, suppose the story goes that they did this because they had to condense the script, but it's like it's a different dialogue, you know? Like it's the same game but it's it's the, the words are different. And uh, I don't think Brian Moriarty was even involved with that. I think it was
1: Orson Scott Card that did a lot of the dialogue. That's his name, right?
0: That's correct, I
1: believe. Yeah. And they removed a lot of the uh attempts of uh humor, I think from the ega version 2 i seem to recall
2: to be fair there are some pretty um strange attempts at huber in that ega version because doesn't like bishop mandible after he before he's about to die make some joke about changing his stationery or something
0: yeah yeah people people point to it as like the first serious like oh i'm now i'm going to be the ruler of the universe right right people point to it as being the the first serious lucas arts game but I mean it, it it did still have humor in it kind of like a wicked sense of humor it, it was it was humorous in the way that like <laughs> Flannery O'Connor is humorous or something
2: <laughs> it's way more like graphic I mean for sure in terms of it's, it's a more mature kind of feeling throughout the game so it certainly could get away with humor if it if it wanted to get away with it
1: I think part of it though is that it only had sporadically some jokes put in there, and it kind of stuck out a little bit in terms of the uh, more relative seriousness of the uh, plot. So I don't know. To me, when playing it, it kind of didn't fit into the game. It works for me because I do love the the strange tone
0: the game strikes. But you are right in that there are these lines that are just kind of like thrown out there, like just like little quips that kind of uh, that 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 just. Um, Feel like they might have been more appropriate in a Monkey Island game. Yeah, exactly.
3: Okay, I, I did check the credits. There were <laughs> they were they did have credits for the uh, for the cost, and it actually did manage to get the entire cast from the audio book back for the game two years later.
0: And the quality of the the quality of the voice acting is really great too, which is just like another reason that version of the game is so maddening to me because it's like this, like it, if like if it would have been made maybe even a year later, it probably could have been the definitive version of the game. But instead, it's like this weird hodgepodge of like it, it's it's like it's like halfway there. It's interesting to to think about what it would have been like a year later because I mean it,
2: I, the impression I get is that Luke starts sort of trying around with different concepts at this time, and Loom is the one where it's like we can we can really go at this with the full dialogue. Um, and then obviously Monkey Island went the other way, where it's like let's just give this a full soundtrack throughout the game. O- obviously CD audio at that point. But then with Monkey Island 2, they introduced iMuse, which was a totally different approach again to what can we stuff into this game. And then after that, they sort of got to do The Tentacle and managed to get everything that fell into place. So it's weird. I mean, like if you think about a loom that might have come out after Monkey Island 1, maybe it would have had iMuse and no dialogue at all. It it could be. I mean, it would be in- it would be fascinating to see. But I don't get the feeling that LucasArts really had like a, a game plan at that point. Like they were just experimenting.
0: It it bothers me a lot that the the CD version is the only one you can get commercially. Because it's just... I I, I I enjoy it, but I see it as like a Curios... I mean, I feel like you got to... It, it, it bums me out that the EGA version is not what's for sale. And, and more so because it would have been so trivial to just bundle it in there, which is what they did with Zack, isn't there? Aren't there multiple versions of Zack bundled with the uh, the version you can get off of um, GOG and Steam? It, it it probably is five megabytes or something silly like that. They could have. Oh, that's all they had to do.
3: Of course, they did the same thing with X Wing. X Wing and Tie Fight games. They're all different versions as well. So it's weird that they, don't, they didn't do the same thing with Loom or if there's some licensing conflict.
0: I think they made some excuse about it being a legal issue, but I don't buy that because, I mean, they were able to do it with Zack. I think they overlooked it, and now they just don't want to go back and fix
3: it. <laughs> it used to be the other way, didn't it? Because you did still have the uh, Passport to adventure with all the different games. And they, which included a, uh, the floppy disk version of Loom, and then the CD-ROM version went out to sale because of the licensing issue, and now it's suddenly the other way around.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the CD-ROM version was actually the harder one to find for a while because of that license. And didn't that have something
3: to do with the fact that
0: Mindscape developed it?
3: I think it. They published it, and it became because the first one I got was an OEM version of the game. Which I think uh, they Minescape. I think they they sold it with other hardware or something like that, and so well,
1: it would make sense that there could be some legal issues with Mindscape because they went bankrupt pretty uh, abruptly, from what I can remember.
3: I could be talking complete bullshit at this point, but
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, Remy, you played the EGA version, right? We I think we browbeat you into doing so.
1: Yes, indeed. Um, I mean. I don't love the game as some some people do, but I think it's too bad that if you go to GOG and you download the game that you get the VGA version because it is, I mean, they have upgraded graphics technically speaking, but I think a lot of it doesn't feel as good as far as the atmosphere goes compared to the EGA version. Uh, I would agree that even though the EGA version is lacking some stuff like voices, it's still probably the ultimate version of it. it has more of a LucasArts feel to it, in my opinion, while the VGA uh, version with upgraded graphics almost feels more like one of those Sierra conversions from the time.
0: And the game does have a really good atmosphere. I mean, even playing it now, I still I still get drawn into it. It's just so... It's difficult to describe it. It's just, it's just a, um, a very unique game. It, it, you can't really compare it to anything else.
1: It always stood out as special. They totally created a world, which is really, really impressive. And yeah, I think some of that kind of got lost in the conversion, in the upgraded version.
2: Yeah, the guild structure of it really gives each area you go to. It's like um, with the islands in Monkey Island. You go to these different guilds and they've all got a totally different aesthetic. And, you know, the whole the whole area is a different place. And you can you can tell which one is which just, you know, straight away when you see them.
1: Yeah, it's just too bad that they didn't get fleshed out a little bit more. I mean, it is a short game, like we mentioned before, and I suppose there would have been reasons for that. Um, I don't know that Moriarty has been talking about, that he was talking about, or thinking about doing two sequels before designing this game, and then he said it was something they thought about after the fact. But I will say, I will
0: say it does feel like there is a lot more to the world. Like, you get the impression that you're seeing a tiny sliver of a of a fully realized world they 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 definitely successfully make
1: you feel like there's more there, no, I agree, and I mean that's great. I think that's uh perfectly fine. I just you know wish that it was fleshed out just a little bit more, but if they had done more sequels like you were talking about Forge or whatever, then I don't know, maybe that would have filled out the blanks that I kind of felt that was missing
0: now, Forge is an interesting because I believe that was worked on prior to Brian Moriarty leaving. If I, if I have the version of the story he told correct in my head, he had kind of the basic idea for the sequel or sequels but didn't want to do them because he was too exhausted or whatever. So he went off and worked on an ill-fated young Indiana Jones game which would have been at Lucas Learning which was like physically a separate building. So while he was in a different building... Some other folks began designing Forge, and then it, you know, the the plug got pulled for one reason or another. There definitely was a design document for it because
2: I've seen the the cover that was on um, Eric Wilmander's yep. site before it got taken down. It, it was one of the ones he hadn't got around to uploading
0: yet. And we know the folks who authored it too. It was a Kalani Stryker. Uh, I'm not confident I'm pronouncing his name right. And Mike Ebert, who they're credited on a bunch of early '90s LucasArts Arts games. Um, Like a lot of the early Star Wars Mm. games and some of the console games, like um, Zombies Ate My Neighbors and the the Star Wars and Indiana Jones side-scrollers, games like that, I think they were going to be the project leaders on Forge. So they were were would-be
1: scum project leaders. Were Mike Stemley and uh, Sean Clark involved in something at some point, too? I
0: I think Stemley did uh, claim he was on that team. I guess he would have gone straight to hit the road when it collapsed.
1: Yeah, I was gonna right. say,
2: I mean, Mike Stemley is the last guy I would pick to make a sequel to Luke.
0: <laughs> but he was, uh, but he was a. Uh, I think he was involved with the first game as a tester or something. So I think I, there was some kind I, of. No,
1: I, I don't think it was. I was looking at the credits, and I don't remember seeing its name. I was actually looking for it, and I do not remember seeing it. I could, be, I could be wrong. In those
0: days, he was more a scripter than
1: a designer, so it, I think it makes sense in that regard. Yeah, he was a tester up until uh, *Monkey Island* one. I'm pretty sure.
0: What was he involved with in A Monkey Island One?
1: Just testing the CD-ROM version, I believe. I see. He worked on Fate of Atlantis, didn't he? Uh, yeah. I think as a scripter.
0: So as far as Forge, I'm not sure why it was canceled. Well, first of all, it's interesting that it ever got greenlit because it points to Loom being a commercial success, which is such a. It just seems odd that it would have been, but it was apparently. Yeah. And then I guess, but but I guess you know, after restructuring of the company and. Consolidation of teams. They just decided that a Loom sequel was less attractive an investment than a game you could slap, Spiel- slap Spielberg's name on. I mean, the game Loom definitely
2: had a didn't have a good reputation in in the sort of gaming press by like the time sort of Curse of Monkey Island was coming out. It was sort of uh, on lists of like weird games. Like it was never on a list of like the best PC games. You know, Loom was always sort of a, a an afterthought or a little joke at the end of the. Right or whatever
0: it was dis- it was dismissed because the people playing graphic adventure games at that time were niche players by definition. I mean if you were playing computer games at all back then, you were in a niche I mean maybe maybe consoles like the Nintendo was a mainstream thing, but I mean if you were playing a game in 1989 you know you were kind of a hardcore gamer by definition, so the games were tailored for people who that's right valued you know. their games based on you know how long they were and how like Difficult they were, so yeah. it the was amazing not... thing
2: about Loom, if you think about it in that sense, is that I mean, it's it's almost it would do better if it came out now because I mean, there's so much simplified compared to other adventure games. There's no uh, inventory, there's no dialogue trees. You could play it on a on a cellphone. Yeah, it
0: was ahead of its time in that it was designed to be accessible. I mean, it almost like foretold Telltale. The only aspect of the game that I consider, like, really dated is the fact that it makes you write down the damn drafts. I mean, the only thing that it would really need to change yeah. was some sort of menu where it stores that stuff. Otherwise, it, design-wise, it's kind of you timeless.
3: Got the, they gave it a book to write down the spells. Right. That, that's what a book of pattern is for.
0: Right, but that's <laughs> that's still kind of ridiculous. Like, all they had to do was make a screen that showed you all the stuff you learned. Yeah,
3: but that... That's not as much fun to write it down yourself, that was the... But that's what you did at the time, even when you, when you played King's Quest VI, which came out at the same time, you got a huge maze that you had to map out. King, King's Quest V had you map out a fucking desert at the beginning of the game, where you had to walk three screens before you died. It, it was... That was what you did back then.
0: Well, just don't don't use a pen. Just don't use a pen. That's no, don't advice. use a pen. <laughs> yeah, that's what the guy who, who, who had the copy I bought did. He used a pen. It's funny, when I replay Loom now, I just... I I refuse to write anything down, so I just I put the pa- I put the drafts in uh, in the save state names because you <laughs> couldn't do that in the old days because I think you were so limited in <laughs> how many saves you could have. I'm not even sure you could name them. I can't remember, but like I literally will just you because, could name because, them actually because I I played it in Dustbox yeah. today.
3: On the Omega, you could have as many saves as you wanted because you use a separate save disk, so you could just fill one disk and then use another disk. Well, Scum
0: VM, you can do whatever you want. You can have a hundred save states. So I'll literally just make a save state for each draft I've learned, so I can just open it up in a menu. Oh, and here, here's here's why here. I'll, I've got a better objection to why the uh, having to write it down. Is a problem because you can get stuck in the game. Otherwise, people say you can't get stuck in Loom, but you can if you fail to write certain drafts down because they don't make you. I remember one time, ages ago, I learned that the hard way when I uh, when you get to the end of the game and you have to reverse the sharpening spell on the you know the thousandth sword in the forge or whatever, and I realized that I had neglected to learn the sharpening spell because it turns out you you have the you have to voluntarily examine the scythe to hear it so because i failed to do that two hours earlier the whole game was you know a dead end i can use a twist spell oh
1: can you yeah that's what i did. oh that's awesome wow wow Wow, so i'm wrong then yeah uh for a lot of them you can actually use multiple spells but uh i mean yeah i see your point other than that
3: I think that was one of the arguments against the late version is that they removed some of the alternate solutions in the VJ version. Oh,
0: because of the dialogue, That is That is a quality that doesn't get enough uh, airtime when talking about the old games. Because, like, say what you want about Zack McCracken and, like, Last Crusade being kind of archaic. Those games, like, they took the time to, like, make, like, five different solutions work. Like, they're really well-designed games in that sense. I mean, they, they're very antiquated in that they're kind of punishing... And you can get stuck, but, like, I, they stopped doing that, like, as a design principle. Like, letting three different things work, because I guess that would have been too much to accommodate. But that's a point that should be brought up with the old games, that they actually, like, said, well, no, you can do these two things and they'll both work, because they're both reasonable things to do. I'm, I'm very impressed, now that I know the twisting spell can dull the sword. Because you do have to learn that one to get past the um, the tornado. Right. So that is a non-optional spell.
3: Yeah, I remember the first time I really got stuck in a game is when you leave Lume Island the first time and you have to reverse a spell to untwist the twister in the ocean. That was the first one because I didn't get that you could play the spells backwards to get the opposite effect.
2: I'm sure that you there's like the the like most hardcore mode of this game. You just play it and you literally have to just hear the drafts and and you have to have, like, pitch or whatever. Like, it doesn't show you what they are, and I imagine if you... no, You can see the colors. No, isn't there, like, a mode, like an extreme mode, if you beat it on Expert or something, where it takes all that away? Yes. And
0: it's just purely what you can hear. I did that once, just for the sake of it, but I've never done it again. I have I have no problems playing it in practice mode, just to make it easier on myself. It, just in my
2: head, it seems like, if you played it that way, if you were, if you were musically inclined, it did it like the reversing of the spells and stuff would probably feel a little bit more intuitive because i i was the same the
0: first time i played it you, I, I forget what gets taken away with each difficulty level but like in in practice mode you get the the notes the bar the color i i don't remember what gets removed in standard mode maybe the uh, maybe they don't show the, the actual letters i i forget now in the original version expert mode uh, was advertised as uh, containing an extra animation, but this is another thing that's gotten like confused over the years, because I think they removed that in the CD version, but maybe didn't remove the reference in the manual or something like that, but basically in expert mode in the original game you get to see Cobb's death which you don't in the other modes Oh really? Yeah huh. But I, I actually like the uh, I actually like the censored version better where they cut away, because I think it's more dramatic but uh it's like a nice little animation where he gets just like sucked into bobbin's head uh but they show it i think <laughs> in the cd version no matter what i don't think there's multiple um incarnations of that scene in the cd version i think they just show it they show the animation
3: yeah it's only an EJ version though in the vj version you get to see the access scene no matter which difficulty you play that right if you fail at the copy protection at the beginning of the game you can't leave lume island because you can't get the f note
1: Ah. Oh,
0: that's that's interesting. Uh. I another thing that gets that got lost um, with ScumVM. Um, well, first of all, you lose the original save load screens, which is too bad. Um, but the earlier games, there were these artificial uh, locks on your ability to save after a certain point. In Maniac Mansion, you can't save. When you reach Doctor Fred's lab, I feel I feel like I'm, we might have talked about this last time, but I'll I'll repeat it. Like you can't save when you hit Doctor Fred's lab. It gives you this message saying something to the effect of like you know the meteor has controlled your computer, and then in Last Crusade, same thing. Once you reach the Grail Temple, it says you can't save at this point. Um, but of course, Scum VM lets you save anywhere you want.
2: I played it in DOSBox though, and I didn't I must I didn't see that come up. Um, I I didn't save it. I must admit, after a certain point, because I knew there was no need to do so, but I'd be interested to see that because I've never really tried to do that. In any, like running in this kind of original um, interpreter,
0: it is weird. Like these tiny, tiny little stupid things that get lost um, with the original interpreters.
2: It is. I mean, all well, just the like you said. You were talking about. I get nostalgic just for seeing this, like this save and load screens. I like uh, seeing the original uh, game paused, or like pressing Control and V and seeing the version come up and stuff. Yeah, and I know you can still do that in the Man, but it's just like there's something powerful about seeing it in the original layout and color scheme.
0: In Maniac Mansion, you get that image of the uh, the tentacle band, and uh, and then you get your limited eight slots of saves, <laughs> where well, I don't think you can even give them a name.
2: Well, I totally forgotten that you could name them in in uh, loom. Because um, when I loaded it up and saved, did the first save? I already had a save in there that I'd forgotten about, um, and it had—it was full of swear words, and I was just like, it just made me—it was hilarious to me that the game was—it was like now loading, piece of shit or whatever, and I'm like, oh wow, I could make the LucasArts games say these words. <laughs> it's totally forgotten. I
0: don't do it myself, but I definitely, I definitely get playing the games in DOSBox just to, just to experience it like as if it was on as if it was the original interpreter it's,
2: yeah it's just hard nostalgia for me that's, that's all it is
0: well I can get over losing the save screens but um I can't play like the Monkey Island 2 classic mode in the special edition I just it's just they, they fucked it up
2: no that's it's the music is wrong yeah. it's just like it's so it's such a basic mistake that they were so pleased with their new soundtrack that like it's almost like no one even listened to the original one they just recorded it exported it and put it in the game
3: Vertical
0: scrolling is cut out. Oh, yeah. Of
3: Some course. lines are altered. Are there any uh, dynamic lines in Monkey Island 2? I remember Monkey Island 1 had a dynamic line of Scott where he said how many pieces of eight he had left.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. You can do that in Monkey Island 2 by polishing the guy's uh, peg leg. So to speak. All right. I think it cuts out. Like, if you need a certain amount of money, you te- technically you could do that like 10,000 times or whatever. And I think he runs out of money just before you get to the point where you would have uh, sort of cheated your way around the puzzle.
0: I know we're getting into the weeds here not talking about Loom, but I do wonder sometimes how many people have gotten stuck in Monkey Island 1 because they fed all of their money into the grog machine one after the other. Yeah, I I'd never even thought to do that. I'm going to guess zero. So, okay, so Remy, you, you might have the most interesting perspective on this game because you played it so late. Um, first of all, how long did it take you to finish the game?
1: I'm guessing about three and a half hours, something like that. It's not bad. No, it's not bad. And I mean, yeah, it is what it is.
0: A review by Remy.
1: Yeah, it is what it (laughs) is. No, I mean, you know, I mean, I get it. Yeah, it's short and whatever, that's fine. Um, But looking at it, yeah, somebody who really very recently played it, uh, you know, I get it. I can see why it's... uh, kind of a cult game within the LucasArts adventure game uh, community. Uh, Personally, I mean, looking at it now from probably a different perspective than a lot of people, yeah, I think it's good. I don't think it's something I would run back and play or anything like that. It's better than Sack McCracken, and it has great atmosphere, and it's (laughs) a decent enough game, but it's not that challenging. And like I said, it's... Much as I like the world, I don't think it's fleshed out quite enough to be overly interesting, to me at least. But I I know I'm in the minority as far as people who play that game. But at the same time, I think most people have played that game a long, long time ago too. And the problem too is if you haven't played it before and you want to buy it at this point, you are going to get the VGA version unless you find the EGA version in some other means, I guess. So, did you play both versions? Yeah, I played part of the VJ version too. Um, didn't get all the way through it, but like I said, I prefer the EJ version. Like quite a well, actually. Uh, Roger put up a uh, poll on Twitter about which version is the ultimate version, and I think it split pretty evenly. There was what it looked like. I, I understand I
0: understand that because I can see people really enjoying the voice acting and also. You know the argument for the FM Towns version would be that it's the best of both worlds. It's got it's it's faithful to the original games in terms of the script and everything else. It's just got the updated graphics, um, but I just I have to give the edge to the original graphics out of for purity reasons. Although, isn't aren't aren't they different VGA graphics than compared to the uh, the CD version?
3: The uh, FM Towns has a limit of one hundred twenty colors or something like that instead of two hundred fifty six. That's I think they had to do some. Changes to it to reduce the amount of colors in the backgrounds.
0: So it's the same, but it's the same upgrade? It's just...
3: I think they used the same graphics at the VJ, but they simplified and removed some gradients to reduce the colors. I see. Hmm. Uh, I looked at the polls. We had 38 votes, and 32% wanted PCVJ. Uh, Another 32% liked FM Tones VJ, and 34% liked PCVJ. Mm -hmm and then 2% on the other.
0: I didn't know 38 people played Loom. That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and
3: 34% wanted liked PCVGA, so it's pretty even.
0: Well, I mean, the solution is to make all three available, but uh, I'm not in charge of that, yeah. I'm afraid.
3: I, I told people to elaborate in the replies, but we only got one reply. I hoped ATM would go on a fun rant or something.
1: Yeah, that's what I was hoping for, too. I mean, he seems to be the super fan of Loom, but alas. Well, I'm
0: hoping I'm hoping we get some fact wrong in the course of this conversation that leads him to make a 30-page <laughs> a diatribe in response.
1: Yeah, oh, yeah, I agree.
0: I'm kind of calculatedly trying to provoke that.
3: It's hard to see the, all this, you know, between all the posts from Horse of Yore that he seems to enjoy.
1: <laughs> but we digress. Uh,
0: something that we posted about when it came out, but I what I what I want to you know reiterate and and recommend everybody check out is um Brian Moriarty a few years ago did a postmortem which you can find on YouTube. It's like an hour long presentation about the making of Loom, and it's uh it's really really good. Um, it's got a lot of good info on it, and also he talks about. I think the most interesting thing is he talks about how he regrets not making the sequels. Um, of course, I mean, in, in hindsight, the, the the next two games he worked on fell apart. So, I mean, it's easier to say in hindsight, but uh, I thought it was interesting that he... He wishes he had committed to the trilogy in retrospect.
1: It's never too late. Yeah, and I think if I had, I mean, like I said, played it later, like I did just last week, um, have... Getting three games and being able to play, play the story all the way through because it does feel vaguely unfinished, I might have looked back at Loom as a better game if it was part of a trilogy. But um, I
0: will I will say this though, even though I, I I acknowledge that it's short and I acknowledge that it feels like the story has more, well, that, that, like it's an unfinished story. It also feels like a, a complete story too. Like it, I I feel like it does tell you know it's it's got a certain symmetry to it and it does end on an appropriate enough note in terms of, like, you know, the first chapter of whatever saga it would have ended up being. Like, you you don't, you don't feel completely cheated by the end of it, in other words. It, it feels like it, it reaches a certain climax, and then, you know, whatever happens after is is what it is, to, I, to quote you.
1: <laughs> I, I, might, I might be saying, I mean, I might be thinking this way just because I know that there were two games that they were thinking about making, and if I didn't... You know know about that, then I might be looking at it more as yeah, being what it is, and it's a full story, and yeah, it's a little bit lacking on the details, but I might have been a little bit more forgiving about it, I don't know
0: did was loom the first game to do the character close ups It feels like that was a short lived yes uh, yeah, tradition. yeah, well, yes. monkey Island monkey Island one did them, and that was it, yeah, that was loom and monkey Island one again, I don't know if that close up of uh the Grail. The, the, the Dead Knight and Last Crusade counts
1: and it technically I guess it did in Monk Island too, with Governor Fat too. I mean sort of but yeah I think that was about it
3: I don't know if that, if that was a response to the uh, Sierra games where they used portraits of people and LucasArts thought okay we, we'll go one step further and just put them on the entire screen when we talk to them instead of just a portrait in, in the corner
0: oh uh, yeah well I do think I mean I don't know what the motivations were but I do think they were used to great effect in Loom they, they felt you know, they felt uh, cinematic. They, I think they worked better in general in,
2: in EGA. And then if you look at Monkey Island 1, when they switched to BGA, you can almost see them kind of go, oh, these, this is getting a little bit too... like It's like we're trying to make it look too realistic now because we've got all these colors. Whereas they were more characterized, I want to say, when they were, you know, like if you look at Chaos or something like Mancom in Monkey Island, in the EGA modes, they're a lot less... Kind of intense and realistic as they are in the, in the VGA, and it kind of I can understand them moving away from it by just going like now that we've got this extra palette, we kind of don't need it, maybe.
0: Yeah, well, Monkey Island 1 does have that, um, they're, they're completely different close ups compared to when you compare the EGA and VGA versions, completely different art styles, even.
3: The VGA versions, I think, is based on fo- fo- photos of real people, while the EGA version is much more cartoonic.
0: And the, e- the EG version is more consistent with uh, the surrounding game, too.
1: It is, but I think Ron Gilbert said in general that he didn't like it because it kind of ruined the flow of the game, that you have a certain type of graphic style, and then all of a sudden you zoom in, and it just kind of felt different. In Loom, it made more sense to me because it had kind of that storybook feel to it, uh, much more so than in uh, the Monkey Island games, the Monkey Island game, I guess.
0: That's the other thing I give Loom credit for is that again it it manages to find it it manages to make a game that even though it's kind of in that vaguely Tolkien realm it it, it always manages to look interesting you know it's it's got that uh, it's got the Walt Disney influence uh, I, th- I mean I think they that they eventually were explicit about the fact that Sleeping Beauty was um, kind of a, a touchstone I mean M- Maleficent and chaos if you put them side by side it's hard to tell them apart yeah. Mm-hmm. It is too bad that uh, Moriarty was never able to get any traction with trying to get the IP revived. Because that's another thing. He, it's another. Um, I mean, he in during the post mortem, he just very openly puts it on the table that he's interested in picking the game up. But I guess they weren't were never able to uh, crack the legal nut, which is too bad. Because I mean, it's been done. Double Fine was able to get those licenses for their remasters, you'd think um That's right, yeah.
3: Moriarty would be able to do it the same way, but I guess not. Tim Schafer has talked about you know having interest in doing the other games if the original designers come on board. And and Loom seems like one of those games that you can play on the Switch or whatever that it, it's more like a ca- casual game than an old school adventure game because of its shortness and it's the easy, you know, the simple interface it uses.
2: Yeah. And I mean it does the way it the way it's sort of as if you compare it to like, Maniac Mansion or Zack McCracken, they're so expansive, where if you do get stuck, there's a hundred different places you can go and look to see if you've missed something. But Loom just forces you into these kind of narrow areas, and, and you've really only got that one mechanic to inter- interact with things. So I think it's, it's definitely would appeal to modern gamers more than some of the others. Uh, particularly the other LucasArts point-and-click
0: games. I'm of two minds about it because, you know, I'd love to see it continue, but it also just seems like such an easy thing to mess up. I mean, part of the mystique of Loom is just how special it is. It it works really well as a one-off, even if it does feel like it should have had sequels. I mean, I don't know. It's It, it, it stands apart so much, you kind of don't want it to be sullied. It's got such a unique atmosphere. I mean, it, there, there's a certain effect to the game that's just... um you can't compare it to anything else it's it's really enchanting and almost almost numinous in a way i would hate to see that messed up it's the most fullest sort of mark ferrari experience you can get with lucas arts which
2: like um because it, it's it's all mark ferrari art and i know you see his uh kind of influence in monkey island one but it's not it's not all him is it um
0: mark ferrari was i think i think he was the main fellow but there was also i mean steve purcell did animations on that game i mean he did the famous animation of um the bishop being decapitated which uh
3: mori already tells a good anecdote about that him and steve purcell and gary Winnick did the characters and uh, mark ferrari steve purcell and Winnick, and a guy called ken macklin did other animations there were a lot of people working on the game yeah, I mean it's the usual stable of great, great animators that they that
0: were working on those earlier games.
2: It's interesting because all those guys worked on all that stuff, but I mean Brian Moriarty really, out of everyone who worked on Lucasarts, really did the most with Scum, like the, away from how it was designed to be used. I think.
0: Yeah, he brought a certain approach. I mean, he you can you can it just feels a little bit more literate. You you can. Uh, how do I put this? I mean, his text adventure background definitely is evident in Loom. And I think it's kind of part of why it feels a little bit different, different in a good way, but it's certainly, I mean, it's on one hand, it's very unmistakably a LucasArts game, but it's also, you know, unmistakably a little bit of a side trip compared to the rest of that kind of arc, you know, like I say, in, in a lot of ways, it was ahead of its time, just the idea of Designing it to be accessible was something that really took another 10 years to be caught up with. I mean, now that's seen as this great um, virtue, but at the time it was like nobody wanted anything to do with it. A game that was easy and put the the story first as opposed to, you know, frustrating the player.
2: Yeah, it's funny to contrast that to sort of when you see the Double Fine uh, Adventure documentary about Broken Age and how. It really took Tim Schafer from Loom to sort of Broken Age to get to that same kind of mindset in a way not that Tim Schafer obviously isn't responsible for some of our favorite games but like that just that thing of like how can we make this accessible how can we make this fun
0: yeah and i think most of the LucasArts developers the designers that made those really hard games i mean they've pretty much all one way or another come on record and saying like yeah we eventually like i think Mike Stimley said something along those lines when he got to Telltale he was saying like yeah we kind of realized that um it's more appropriate to not punish the player. Yeah. Although that has to be taken in the context of its time too, because I mean, relative to what was being made at the time LucasArts was kind of gentle. Also, on the subject of the artists who worked on the game, I know Mike Ebert was on that team as well. He would have been one of the project leaders of Forge. So if that game had happened, there would have been some shared DNA there.
2: Yeah, it's a real shame the design document never got put up.
0: Yeah, I wonder if Eric Wilmunder could be persuaded to finish that process off, because that's too bad that we just got the cover page and not the whole document. I don't know what the source is, but I think a fairly uh, complete outline of the story for the game was shared at one point. I mean, don't quote me and I don't know the veracity of it, but I
3: think that's the case. Well, the idea was that you would start playing as Rusty Nailbender, the, the kid from the blacksmith's guild that right. you kind of fuck, fuck over in, in, in loom as Bobbin. And, uh, you would, I think battle chaos from taking over the world. And then the fold would be about the woman in the, uh, the shepherd's guild.
0: Right, but didn't he also uh, share some specific ideas about how the interface would work? Like, it wouldn't be a distaff, but it would still be musical-based, it would be percussion-based, to be more in keeping
3: with the blacksmiths, or something along those lines. Well, he, he would carry a steel drum around?
1: <laughs>
3: well, Mike, Mike Ebert, I checked up, he is credited for the 256-color uh, stuff in the game. Oh, really? It's not... He's not credited on the original artwork. Steve Purcell, Steve, Steve Purcell is credited in both, so they did have some overlap in people between the versions.
0: Yeah, but I'm sure the credits aren't necessarily. I mean, who knows? They, there's probably lots, lots of copy and pasting going on. Was a Kalani Striker involved with the original game? He was the other project. Le- he was the other author of the the Forge document. He would have been a programmer, I think. Additional
3: programming. Was. There you go. Whatever that is. Usually when you see something like additional programming, additional music, especially in TV series or something, it usually means they did all of it. And the other guy just (laughs) just gets a courtesy credit because he had the contract to do it originally. Yeah, the Striker guy has additional scripting on Last Crusade and additional programming on Fate of Atlantis and another additional programming on Loom, so yeah he probably programmed all of it additional
2: programming it's almost like he just sort of solved like one problem like they come and knock on his door and be like we can't solve this we can't get this one and he's like do this you get another credit for another game
0: it is interesting like it is interesting the guys who almost became scum project leaders like um those two i guess would have been and then there's uh Eric Wilmunder, would have been Iron Phoenix if that had gotten made
3: Striker actually went over and did the Super Star Wars trilogy for Super Nintendo and then he did Mission Design for X-Wing. So he went that into the Star Wars world afterwards.
2: Right based on that Forge would have been extremely difficult.
3: Moriarty, I mean I, we
0: should touch on this a little bit before we before we knock off. Moriarty had a really interesting, you know, career in Lucas Arts. I mean, interesting meaning things didn't work out very well, but it's I mean, he made he he did the one game that got published really. I mean, and it was a great game, and then there was just, you know, what came after. Because there was the the Lucas, there was the Indiana Jones game that got canceled for whatever reason, maybe because the the TV show did, and they decided not to bother. In fact, I, I speculated in the Iron Phoenix article I wrote that um, that was what was being referred to and the end credits of Fate of Atlantis. It has that kind of James Bond tease, you know, Indy will return as a younger man. I mean, I'm assuming yeah. that was meant to set up the game he was working on.
3: Yeah, uh, Fate of Atlantis originally was supposed to be succeeded by a young Indy game because they were doing the TV series at the time. But, it, right. but it is, it's listed in a couple of other games as scum advice offered by on Fate of Atlantis. And is listed as additional story on the dig. So I assume they used some of his story elements in the final game.
2: Oh man, whose whose story elements didn't end up in
3: the dig? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's also listed as ghosts of digs past on the dig.
0: <laughs> I think I think I'm actually credited under that category on the dig. So everyone
3: <laughs> And and on the last Chrysity Graphic Adventure it's listed as Margarita in Biber, so that's probably <laughs>
0: <laughs> It's too bad that, you know, he makes this really interesting game and then, you know that's the end of his LucasArts career. It sounds like he had a run of bad luck and and he bit off more than he could chew with the dig and then that was it.
2: I wonder how much of it was Monkey Island 1 and 2 sort of coming out and, and being made in such a quick turnaround and getting two games out that did relatively well compared to their other games and management just saying, like, we can't be having these kind of long, expensive projects. I mean, I imagine that, in my head, Loom cost more than The Secret of Monkey Island. And, um... And then they made Monkey Island 2 in like nine months.
0: And even even those two games, even those two games were not like blockbuster successes. Like it pretty much took the um, the European revenue.
2: Yeah, Monkey Island One was like a hundred thousand, wasn't it? It was
0: some low number. I mean it's it's hard to it's hard to un, it's hard to know what would have been a good number back then because you know the the market was so much smaller. I mean a hundred thousand units was a yeah. hit back then.
1: Yeah, I think I remember reading that uh, an Amiga game. Uh, Granted, they had a lot of pirate copying, but we're talking about 5,000 to 6,000. It's considered a decent sale. So PC was probably a little bit bigger, but, I mean, we're not talking huge markets at all. Sure.
0: And Ron Gilbert made it clear that even though, like, Monkey Island 1 and 2 are seen as these classics, they were not, like, runaway successes. It was just...
1: They kind of, like, barely broke even. Yeah, none of the LucasArts games were that big. I mean, they had a good reputation and everything like that, but the Sierra games sold a lot more at the time.
3: Yeah, Sierra ate their lunch sales-wise. I think Fate of Atlantis sold better because of the Indiana Jones connect- connection.
1: Yeah, I think I think Fate of Atlantis did probably better just, like you said, because of the indie name. Was it Full Throttle that was their biggest seller of the adventure games? It,
0: Full Throttle was said to be their biggest seller when it came out of the adventure games, and then The Dig topped topped it. And I guess so I guess that makes the dig, ironically, the best selling adventure game. Did the dig really sell more than full throttle? I believe that's the case. Something like a half a million. Wow. Yeah. No, it sounds about right. But they were both they were both successes.
2: I mean the dig was a huge, huge advertising push when it came out, in a way that Full Throttle wasn't. I mean I remember seeing adverts for the Dig everywhere. Um and I but I I knew about Full Throttle because I liked LucasArts, but everyone knew about the dig, if you see what I mean.
0: Yeah, they were really just flogging the Spielberg element of that. Although, I mean... Yeah, that's I, right. Is, there, is it really possible that game turned a profit in terms of like having to make up for the nine years of development that was squandered on it?
1: Well, that's a different question altogether, I guess.
0: I'd be
2: amazed if The Dig really did, over the course of its production, make a profit, in the, in the fullest sense. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, I, do, I have no idea, but it just feels like it, it
0: took too long to make well i guess that's all we got so in summary loom is a masterpiece lt Zaren, and i agree uh the ega version is a, is a real masterpiece th- three of us agree that it's a work of art remy is a dismissive asshole, and um <laughs>
1: situation normal
0: yeah
2: <laughs> oh well it was uh it was good to come back and chat to you guys uh
0: yeah and as always to those listening uh give us a recommendation on a- another topic that you may or may not want us to cover and then in you know three to four years we'll we'll see about doing it but um until then zarin do you have anything do you I-, I guess you
3: have to give the usual uh advertisements well well we do we do have our social media i guess uh the most popular one of course is twitter at mixed mojo and then we do have uh the YouTube channel, which are seldom updated at House of Mojo. The, and then we do have Facebook, which nobody should visit because no, none of us visited. So, yeah. And then we do have a Twitch channel, which we've, I don't know if you will ever use, but we got it.
1: We also have a Patreon account, so you can give us some donation. And I believe we are mixing Mojo on Patreon.
0: Yeah. And finally, I would like to humbly beg ATM machine to find some fault with our discussion of Loom and respond in the most verbose way possible. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.
2: Thanks, guys.